0: Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. This week's case has been researched by a friend of the show, Chris Wood, and as usual, he's done a fantastic job bringing a story to my attention that was previously unknown to me. Thanks, Chris. The story involves an academically gifted teenager from Liverpool who develops a fantasy world with, yep, you guessed it, a shocking outcome. But first, I must thank all my supporters on Patreon, but especially my new supporters this week. That's Mike Featherstone, Fiona Wiley, Bethan Truman, Emma Jones, Marion McCauley, Lisa Cooper Ardlich, welcome back, and Tiago A.T.C. I won't attempt to pronounce your second name, Tiago. Thank you all so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy the 14 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. I'm delighted that this week's episode is sponsored by The Economist. Get your free copy of The Economist now. Visit economist.com/truecrime. Just enter your details for your free copy to be delivered directly to your door. Now, I've read The Economist for years. It's about far more than just economics and finance. It covers a range of subjects from politics and business to science, technology, arts and the environment. I love the sheer variety of the articles. In the latest episode, listeners to this podcast will be interested in the disruption shaking up the undertaking business right now. And there's a really insightful piece about how the expansion in drugs markets to nearby counties is contributing to the rise in stabbings in the UK, something we've been discussing on the UK True Crime Facebook page recently. Take a look today, you won't be disappointed the Economist helps readers prepare for what is going on in the world around them and in today's dynamic world when we are not always sure of which news sources we can trust facts matter more than ever. The Economist is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Get your free copy now. So support this podcast and get your free copy of The Economist by visiting economist.com slash truecrime That's economist.com slash truecrime Just enter your details for your free copy to be delivered directly to your door. So on to today's story. 2004 began with the suicide of Dr. Howard Shipman, found dead in his cell. And in May, the ever-popular Piers Morgan was axed as editor after the paper published fake pictures of Iraqi prisoner abuse. That might have been good news at the time, but sadly, we've now got him every morning on Good Morning Britain but at least he was rightly shown to be not guilty of insider trading at his time at the Mirror Group. I'm sure that, just like the police, none of my listeners believe him capable of using information for his own personal gain for one moment. August saw the mighty League United begin life in the Championship, having just been relegated from the Premier League. They started well, with a 1-0 home win over Derby County. But who'd have thought that all these years on, we still wouldn't have reclaimed our rightful place in the top flight. Cue abuse. September saw the death of Brian Clough, the charismatic footballer and former manager of Nottingham Forest and, very briefly, the Mighty League United, among a host of other clubs. What did you make of him? I was always a big fan. And 2004 was a vintage year for music, with Atomic Kitten and Victoria Beckham among the musical geniuses that were wearing our charts at that time. Brian and Jacqueline Blackwell had met in the late 1960s through their jobs as buyers for Littlewoods in Liverpool. They'd both been married and divorced and believed they were lucky in finding love again and married some years later. They would a child together who they also named Brian. By the way, why do people do that? Any idea? Anyway, he would prove to be their only child, although Brian Sr., did have two older children from his first marriage. The family lived just outside Melling near Lancashire, in a bungalow on Sandy Lane in a pleasant, quiet village. The sort of place where, okay, yep, you guessed it, yet another place where nothing bad ever happened. But the serenity of the village would, in 2004, be shocked to its very foundation, following some quite remarkable and devastating events. Brian Blackwell was regarded as a lovely child, extremely bright and well-mannered, with friends of the family, seeing him as a very nice boy, always polite and generally considered to be a model son. Indeed, the head of Liverpool College, Brian Christian, claimed that Brian Blackwell was extremely good at languages and sciences and worked diligently and keenly to achieve his goal of one day becoming a doctor. He was regarded as one of the college's high flyers, and his success at school and college led to his parents even giving him the nickname Brains. Possibly not the best way to keep a child's feet on the ground, but nonetheless, the innocent nickname initially at least did not appear to affect Brian. Were you nicknamed Brains by your family? No, me neither. However, the perfect family image that was on view to friends and family began to show signs of wear and tear. It was known that Brian's parents seemed to be happier with their son having friends closer to their age rather than his own. They did like him attending the local David Lloyd tennis club, possibly due to the prestige for some people that still surrounds that club, but they were not so keen for Brian to socialise and mix with friends of his own age. Were they just being protective, or was this something more unhealthy, I wonder? From the outside, looking into a situation like this, we could all probably imagine this not being a great setup for young Brian. And as we have seen many times on this podcast, such control over another person, whatever the relationship, very often does not end well. The level of control was clearly seen when Brian was accepted into both Edinburgh and Nottingham universities to study medicine. Brian Jr. decided he preferred to study in Nottingham, but as his parents preferred Edinburgh as a city, Brian Sr. set about hijacking his son's place in Nottingham. He even called the admissions office in Edinburgh and advised them his son would not be attending their university. Brian's undoubted capabilities intellectually had led to great ambitions and generated much pride in his parents. His mum Jackie was extremely keen for Brian to fulfil his potential and there was certainly pressure on Brian but he appeared to cope very well with this. As if to confirm his self-belief, Brian was known at school and college for being, well, a little bit cocky. Possibly the result of being nicknamed Brains by his own parents. And he was generally an extrovert who often told lies. But those lies would become more and more elaborate and sinister as he grew older. These lies started to get a little out of control and they began to form the basis of a complete fantasy life for Brian which all centred around heightened claims of his tennis ability. It was true that Brian was a very good schoolboy player, and he did captain the boys' tennis team at Liverpool College. But this was Brian's level, nothing higher than this. As you know, making it in pro tennis is exceptionally difficult, and Brian was not even a top county player. He was of a good club standard, with no chance of making it as a professional. But in Brian's own mind... He believed he was of international elite level and he wanted everyone around him to believe this too. Brian was actually given a sponsorship deal by a tennis sports firm but in reality this was the lowest sponsorship offered. It basically allowed Brian to buy rackets and other equipment at discounted prices. Undoubtedly this would be a nice little bonus whilst playing the sport he loved but Brian was keen to add as much glitz and glamour to his fabricated sponsorship deal as possible. He claimed that he was sponsored by Nike and they were sponsoring him to travel to international tournaments. Police would later find that it even doctored the rankings list in a tennis magazine which showed the standings of young players. Yeah, guess where he placed himself? At number one. The reality, of course, was that young Brian did not appear in any of these standings. The fantasy lifestyle appeared to be created with the intention of impressing his girlfriend, 17-year-old Amal Saba. Amal was a fellow student at Liverpool College and she lived with her sister and divorced mum in Chilwell, South Liverpool. The pair had met at school in 2001 and became friends and over a three-year period, the relationship developed and they grew very close. It appears that Amal was exactly the type of person that could be taken in by Brian's web of deceit. Newspaper journalist Danny Brooke, who would later cover the story, commented that Amel seemed innocent as opposed to naive, but there was something very sweet and very vulnerable about her. So to this end, it was clear that she was the perfect recipient of Brian Blackwell's lies. However, let's not get it wrong here. Amel was certainly not stupid. She, like Brian, intended to go on to Nottingham to read medicine, and there was certainly an intellectual connection between the pair. Even in this respect, Brian wanted to try to impress her above and beyond what his intellectual capacities would allow. His fabricated life was beginning to look more and more fanciful, and Amal's friends soon began to question his stories. Perhaps this was out of jealousy initially, or genuine concern for Amil, or more probably, a combination of both. But nonetheless, whatever the reasoning behind their doubting of Brian, it did, momentarily at least, make Amal question her boyfriend. She went online to try and discover where in the tennis world Brian was seeded, which reveals that she must have had some niggling doubts in the back of her own mind. However, as Brian continued to overwhelm her, she failed to take her doubts far enough to confront her boyfriend about his tall stories. And let's face it, at 17, she probably wanted to believe that her boyfriend was a hero. As time went on, Amil was getting more and more caught up in the fantasy lifestyle that Brian had created, and he was prepared to maintain this deceit at all costs. After all, he couldn't risk losing Amol. Brian started to produce more extravagant and lavish gifts to Amol, and it was as if he felt that he had to constantly impress her with presents on a grandiose scale to keep her love. As you can imagine, just my boyish good looks and charisma are enough to impress my wife every day. This type of behaviour from young Brian is perhaps revealing as highlighting the inner insecurity that Brian Blackwell felt. Worried that if he didn't continually bombard Amal with expensive gifts, then she may sever all ties with him and find somebody else, somebody else more interesting and more glamorous. As if any girl would leave a boyfriend for someone with more money. What utter nonsense. One of the biggest deceptions that Brian bound Amal up in was when he claimed that he could get her a job as a PA, his PA. His sponsor Nike advised Brian that he needed one and the role would provide Amal the salary of a cool 80 grand a year. Once again, this clearly was not true. Although in April 2004, Brian did write her a cheque for £39,000 despite only having nine pence in his bank account. Obviously the check bounced, but Brian again was able to lie to avoid her suspicion. For such a young man, it was pretty frightening how easily he was able to lie. And this ability would help him in the very near future. Brian took Amel on a tour around Liverpool's most expensive car showrooms, telling her that he needed a suitable car to match his tennis star status. All this, and he couldn't even drive. This tour did, however give Brian an idea of how he could impress his girlfriend further. He bought Amwell a surprise gift of a Ford car, claiming that he'd paid for it with sponsorship money. It's easy to see how Amwell was taken in by Brian. After all, he was on occasions such as this able to back up his yarns with material proof that he had money. Brian did not actually have the money for this through a sponsorship deal, but he did fund the purchase via a fixed-rate bond set up by his parents in order to fund his education. Brian's mum Jackie quickly realised what had happened, but in typical fashion, he was able to smooth things over with his parents as they confronted him. However, his parents now had a real understanding of some of their son's spending habits. As you will know, for someone to be adept at telling lies, they really do need a good memory. Brian actually covered his tracks in this respect by writing down conversations he'd had with Amel, so as not to forget things he told her. Quite extraordinary, really, isn't it? By now, Amel was completely dazzled and taken in by Brian and the promise of a lifestyle that he could supposedly offer her. In the middle of May 2004, Brian presented himself to a bank in South Liverpool claiming to be a professional tennis player in receipt of an annual salary of around £45,000, but he needed access to funds as his father had died. Again, untrue, but doesn't this reveal the lengths that Brian was prepared to go to in order to enforce his web of deceit? One of his principal means of purchasing items was by using his parents' credit cards. Clearly this was not sustainable over the long term, and it would only be a matter of time before they realised what their model son had been doing. Jackie Blackwell was in the main responsible for the family finances and so when she found out what Brian had done she was understandably very upset. Indeed Jackie took her fears further attending banks where Brian had made applications for credit and advising the bank staff that the applications were false and she had them withdrawn. But this wasn't enough to stop Brian. He went straight back out again and applied for other cards again often in the name of his parents. The momentum of Brian's lying was increasing and his stories were becoming increasingly elaborate. He told Amel that he was heading to Milan to play in a tennis tournament at the end of May 2004 and asked if she'd like to go with him. Amel, understandably, was delighted to accept but at the last minute, her hopes were quashed when Brian announced that his sponsor would not allow wives or girlfriends to attend the event. So Amel was left behind, Aaron Bryan skipped school for three days whilst apparently playing tennis in Milan. He even set up a backstory by texting Amel saying that he was about to head on court, wish me luck and that he'd just met Roger Federer. Another shameless lie but no doubt this level of detail added credibility in Amel's mind. If Amel was sad not to have been in Milan watching Brian play tennis, this was soon forgotten when she was promised a trip to Florida in the summer when he was allegedly due to play there. The couple excitedly planned this trip with Amel wondering what to pack and with Brian surely wondering in his mind how on earth he was going to pay for this lavish holiday. By now it was clear that Brian had become completely detached from the reality of life and had told one too many lies. In a relatively short period of time, he'd immersed himself in an irretrievable situation. He was desperate for the money needed to fund the luxury trip he had promised to Amel, and he could not let her down again. On Sunday, July the 25th, things between Brian and his parents would change forever. Following a trip with his father to the local David Lloyd Tennis Centre, sometime after 11am that morning, Brian booked two tickets to JFK Airport, New York, in business class, costing over £4,000, clearly a sum of money that Brian did not have. His father, however, did have access to this sort of cash. So Brian paid for the tickets using his father's credit card. A short time later, his parents realised what their son was planning and insisted he would not be able to take Amal on the holiday that he had promised her. This left Brian facing a new problem, as up until this point, he'd delivered on the majority of his promises to his girlfriend, but with his parents now aware of his plan, things would now be a whole lot more difficult. Although we're not sure of the details, at some stage on that Sunday evening, a row ensued between Brian and his father. The argument got heated before taking a ghastly and violent turn. Brian Blackwell struck his 71-year-old father over the head with a claw hammer. This would prove to be the prelude to a horrifying double murder. He then savagely stabbed his dad 30 times with a 10-inch carving knife and hearing the noise, Brian's mum Jackie walked in on what must have been an unimaginable scene. Her 19-year-old son then knocked her unconscious with the hammer before stabbing her in the head and the chest over 20 times. Following the brutal slayings, he packed a case and took a taxi to Amal's house, coldly leaving the bodies of his parents lying in the bungalow. The taxi driver later reported that Brian acted and sounded completely normal throughout the short journey to his girlfriend's home. I wonder if he actually slept that night. Would you, if you'd just murdered two people? But the following day, Brian Blackwell still clearly felt no guilt or remorse. With Amal in tow, the young couple flew to New York. Upon landing, Brian had arranged for a luxurious limousine to collect them and deliver them to the Plaza Hotel in New York, booking them into a suite overlooking Central Park. The three-night stay would cost a staggering £3,900, all thanks to his now-deceased father's credit card. Money was now no object to Brian, The obstacles which he'd encountered back home with his parents had now been removed and Brian was intent on ensuring that Anwell had the time of her life. Before the couple departed the Plaza Hotel, Brian ordered extravagant room service meals of lobster, caviar and champagne before treating Anwell to a shopping spree on 5th Avenue in stores such as Prada and Gucci where she was allowed to have anything that she desired. Furthermore, Following later police investigations, a bill was recovered following one evening meal which tallied to an incredible, well, it was almost 4,000 US dollars. Curiously, Amwell did not seem to question the absence of any tennis during the holiday. This was after all what Brian was supposedly there to do. As had often been the case, Brian was able to deceive her again, claiming that when he was due to be in Miami, where the tournament was to be held, the weather was terrible. So it had to be cancelled. Following the New York adventure, the couple moved on to Miami, the weather had improved by then, San Francisco, and Barbados. In a rather gruesome fashion, Brian would pretend to call his parents from the hotel room where Amel would also be and would tell them how much fun he and his girlfriend were having. Police would later recover many holiday photographs of the happy couple, broadly smiling away beside the Statue of Liberty or relaxing on golden, sun-drenched beaches. Again with Brian showing no apparent signs of stress, or unease, in relation to the horror he'd inflicted upon his own parents, only days earlier. Following the two-week trip around the US and Barbados, Brian and Amel returned home. Brian initially went straight to his parents' home in Melling, possibly expecting to see the property swarming with police. But instead, he was met by the next-door neighbour, Gordon Morris. Gordon had been collecting the post for the Blackwells and he noticed Amel on the pavement in front of the bungalow with their luggage from the US trip. Gordon asked if Mr and Mrs Blackwell were now back from holiday, to which Amel advised they hadn't been together. She and Brian had been to America whilst Brian's parents had been to Spain. After all, that is what her boyfriend had told her. Brian confirmed to the neighbour that his parents were still in Spain and that he couldn't access the bungalow as he'd lost his key which at this point prompted Amal to ask him if he'd like to stay at her house instead which would no doubt have been very convenient to Brian. Brian clearly had not lost his key and he'd even visited the property several times while his parents' bodies lay dead and decomposing. It was later revealed that he'd entered the bungalow to retrieve some photographs he wanted, all whilst his bodies were lying on the floor where they'd fallen. His ability to continue to block out what he'd done was staggering. On August 19th 2004, nearly four weeks after the murders, he was still acting as though nothing had happened. On this day, like millions of other teenagers, he collected his long-awaited A-level results. Again, he seemed completely normal and was happy and excited with the marks he'd received, the straight A's that enabled him to go to Nottingham and study medicine as planned. In another cruel jibe from Brian, he even callously remarked to his friends that his parents had let him down again by not being with him on the day to collect his results. But Brian knew that the bodies of his parents lay undetected in the bungalow and something needed to be done about this. His solution was, rather remarkably, to approach two men in the nearby town of Kirby and ask them to burn the property down as it was the home of a drug dealer he'd had problems with and he was now seeking revenge. On the streets of Kirby, he cut a, well, such a suspicious figure in the way he dressed and the way he spoke. The men he'd approached just assumed Brian was another undercover police officer and unsurprisingly, they did not believe his story. Still thinking that the Blackwells were on holiday in Spain, another neighbour, Pete Boyle, became concerned over the build-up of mail in the front porch, which was open. Pete decided to post the mail through the letterbox, but as he did so, he was hit by an incredibly powerful, vile smell from the bungalow. As he stepped back he noticed that the door and the windows to either side were completely covered in flies. Suspicions now raised, the neighbour ran around to the back of the property and he peered through the window. The most grotesque and horrifying sight greeted him as he noticed that the entire floor appeared to be moving as the flies and the blue bottles gathered and swarmed over the dead bodies. Once more, as we've heard many times on this podcast, it was the acrid smell of death that led to the discovery of murder. At this point, the police were called and swiftly arrived. The disturbing scene that met officers made it immediately apparent they were entering a crime scene. The bodies were exactly where they had been left six weeks earlier. Initially, police believed a burglary had taken place and that Brian and Jackie had been shot. The state of the bodies was such that the cause of death was not initially possible to ascertain and detectives would have to wait a couple of days following the post-mortem to identify how the couple had died. The police were understandably keen to track Brian Blackwell down so they could inform him of his parents' death. When they found him at Amal's house, two officers broke the news to Brian who reacted in much the same way that anyone would upon hearing such shocking news. Brian was not treated as a suspect initially, but upon speaking to him at Amal's house, DCI Mike Keogh of the Merseyside Police began to realise that he knew more than he was letting on. At one point, completely out of context, Brian asked Keogh, is prison cold? Was this his first realisation that there was nowhere to hide? And, well, boy, not exactly the response you'd expect from a suspect in an episode of Columbo, was it? Understandably at this point, Keogh decided to arrest Brian for the murder of his parents. During interview, Brian typically seemed to believe himself to be much cleverer than those detectives interviewing him. He could not understand why he was being held, whilst others who had been to the property, such as the Blackwell's neighbours, were also not being questioned. And while the interviews were taking place, the police were systematically searching both the Blackwell's and Amwell's house for clues that would help convict the killer. Of immediate interest to the police was a carrier bag which contained a hammer and a set of keys to the Blackwell's house which Brian had always maintained he did not have. The police could now link this to Brian who had up until that point claimed he could not have entered the house as he had no access. Faced with this new evidence, Brian Blackwell finally confessed. His story, though, in usual fashion, differed from that provided by police forensics. Whilst Brian claimed that he acted in self-defence and hugely minimised the level of violence he'd inflicted upon his parents, the results from the forensics team painted a far more detailed and accurate version of events. Brian Blackwell Sr. had been severely bludgeoned about the head with a blunt instrument and suffered stab wounds to his face, upper chest, arms and hands the latter being consistent with defence injuries. This made it clear that Brian Blackwell Sr. had actually been the victim of an incredibly savage attack. Two days after his arrest, Brian Blackwell was charged with the murder of his parents. Those closest to the family simply could not believe what they were seeing. The apparent model's son, charged with such a violent crime, just did not seem plausible. His unwavering arrogance did not appear to dissipate from prison even writing to Amal begging to see her. After initially refusing, she did finally agree to see her former boyfriend and she later claimed that Brian was still in denial over what he had done. But after what we've heard so far, are we really surprised? Police had initially thought there was sufficient evidence to pursue a charge of murder through the courts. But following psychiatric reports, a further twist emerged. It was unanimously agreed that Brian suffered from NPD or Narcissistic Personality Disorder which made him obsessed with fantasy and power. They argued that the killings were not the result of premeditated murder rather the result of narcissistic rage. This meant that the police and CPS would not be able to pursue the charge of murder rather manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility ensuring that he now did not have to face trial by jury. In June 2005, at Liverpool Crown Court, David Steer QC announced that the killings were not premeditated and that the pathological disorder he had suffered from had caused him to fly into the murderous rage in response to his parents having threatened his fantasy world. During the court hearing, Blackwell did attempt to convey remorse for what he had done. Reading a letter to the court, he revealed the options he had taken in hospital with a view to addressing his anger management. As we have seen throughout today's podcast, trying to decipher whether this was genuine remorse or not cannot be easy with a man for whom lying is just normal, so normal for him. Sentencing Blackwell to a discretionary life sentence, the judge remarked that he had shown breathtaking callousness. For a son to do this, is almost beyond belief. But then again, you are no ordinary son. Outside court, DCI Mike Keogh said that officers could not begin to imagine the distress and pain these terrible deaths had caused. This has been a very tragic case involving the death of a mother and father, leaving the remaining family shattered. So what do we make of what we've heard today? Of course, we spare many a thought for Amal. We can only imagine how devastated on so many levels she must have felt and I wonder how it's going to affect her through future life. As we often learn in cases where individuals are completely oblivious to their loved ones' actions, those loved ones subsequently feel huge guilt, perhaps feeling that they could in some way prevent it, tragedy. I wonder if Amel and other members of the family look at the unhealthy dynamics of control present in the relationship and wonder if there was more that could have been done, some intervention. But in this case, I would suggest this just wasn't possible. Nobody could possibly have foreseen that this otherwise polite and quiet young man would get so enraged to actually murder his own parents. But then again, as you know, murdering parents isn't uncommon, and it is usually motivated by greed. So maybe when you look at your gorgeous loving children, nieces, And nephews, you know that they certainly wouldn't be capable of murder, could they? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please come and join our Facebook group, it's a lot of fun. We talk about all aspects of UK true crime, certainly just not this podcast. But I would be interested to hear your thoughts on this very interesting case. To support the show, please head to patreon.com. Slash UK True Crime. There are 14 full length bonus episodes for you to enjoy along with other exclusive content. And it is via my supporters on Patreon that I'm actually able to continue to make this show every week. 75 shows so far. (laughs) Wow. So as summer has now finally arrived in the UK, I'm going to strip down to my leopard skin thong and go and sunbathe in the garden. On that bombshell, until we speak again next week, it's Cheerio.